Guru Nation, welcome to episode 453 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. This is a very special episode. I got to interview Craig Lipset. Craig, I mean, he's if you're in the industry for any amount of time, you know who Craig is. Um, basically, he used to be the director of innovations for Pfizer. Now he has his own agency where he's helping basically any, everybody in the industry trying to push the industry forward, really behind the whole decentralized patient-centric movement that are going on the links to his linkedin are in the show notes as well so make sure you connect with him he's wildly popular we talk about a whole bunch of things in this video or in this interview such as where he thinks the industry is going to be by 2030 uh what how covid has impacted the industry and just a whole bunch of interesting stuff from one of the industry's best minds craig lipset so check out his link in the show notes also in the show notes we got the patreon channel five bucks a month includes a monthly mastermind with other members of the patreon channel where we help each other achieve our business and career objectives check it out also in the show notes cra and crc academies finally if you need help getting more studies for your site send me a text 949-415-6256 just don't text while you're driving okay just make a mental note to go listen to this podcast again and get my number Um, or if you're not driving 949-415-6256 with all that being said enjoy this episode take care Hello, Guru Nation. Welcome back to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I've got Craig. I've got Craig Lipset on. He's the um, founder of Clinical Innovations. I'm going to butcher what you just told me, Craig. Can you can you introduce who you are and what you do right now, like your current company? Dan, I'm the founder of Clinical Innovation Partners, an advisory practice. I'm on the faculty at uh, Rutgers University and the University of Rochester, but Dan, I'm finally back on. I know. I'm I was finally back, say, baby. This is why I forgot because, you know, you used to be Clinical Innovations Pfizer. You were one of my first guests I ever had on, like literally a decade ago. That's not hyperbole. It was 2010 that I had you on. You were like one of the biggest guests I ever got on and the first one of the first ones. We talked about virtual clinical trials. This is how early Craig Lipset is, guys. All right. Everybody's talking about virtual trials now in 2020. Craig was talking about that in 2010. You can go on YouTube. There's documentation of this happening on YouTube. So Craig, you're early. This is why we love having you on and it's hard to get you on. This is why Craig's always speaking at conferences. Remember when we used to go to conferences and like we would watch speakers? Now it's all virtual. Yeah, there was something like a conference, like conferences with people in real life, right? That's that, right. That, that's that right. That to be a thing. I guess it'll be a thing again. I'm hoping maybe 2021. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, actually? I think that by late in 2021, I think we're going to start to realize this new future of hybrid and what it looks like in a lot of things in our life. I think if, um, whether it's conferences or other things, I'm expecting to see more optionality for people and how they participate. Some people may be there in person. Some people, it's not right for them, and they should still have the ability to engage and learn and share. I think that spirit of optionality and, and a hybrid world 
actually trickles into clinical trials as well. How's that for a segue, Dan? <laughs> That's a beautiful segue. I mean, there's so much to talk about, but the fact that you, you're, you're a futurist, I mean, you saw virtual trials, you had a, a big role in shaping that whole uh, segment of the industry, virtual trials, decentralized trials, that COVID really brought front and center again, because prior to COVID, it was just something that was nice. You know, let's think about how we can make this easier for patients. COVID made it boom, this is like how we're going to have to survive as an industry, at least in the short term, maybe even in the long term, some of these things are going to stay. Like, what are, what are you seeing with that as far as things starting to slowly get back to normal, even though infections are starting to climb? We're recording this in October, late October 2020. So if you're watching in the future, I hope we came out all right. Uh, we don't know. But uh, what do you think? Do you think any of this stuff is here to stay or is it just to be used during uh, a pandemic? You know, I, I agree with you, Dan, that, you know, at the height of the lockdowns when we were in that March, April, May timeframe, we needed strategies to keep these trials going and avoid studies from shutting down prematurely because of futility. Changing how we were monitoring and changing the location were really two of our big countermeasures that we were able to deploy as, as an industry. And I think by and large succeeded. But I found it interesting by like the June, July timeframe, some people were saying to me, well, this will be our new normal. And, you know, up until that point, most organizations were operating with SOP deviations, protocol deviations and SOP waivers. All these things are, are temporary countermeasures, right? That a deviation in a waiver means we did it differently once, but we're going back. So it was interesting to see, I think by late summer and early fall, organizations starting to really commit to these changes. And committing is different than just deploying it during the heat of a pandemic, right? But committing means organizations are looking at their SOPs and, and procedures and seeing if they're consistent with these new approaches. They're, they're looking at their vendor and partner lists and seeing, is there anyone else we need to add that can support some of these new capabilities? They're, they're looking at their training to see for themselves, their sites, their CROs, for the patients, does our training mash up to using these new approaches? And for many, they're rethinking how they're even writing their protocols in terms of the endpoints they're using, because let's face it, we don't know what lies ahead. I think most of us are looking forward to going back to some way of life, of getting out, and but who knows what lies ahead. Right? <laughs> look at, yeah, exactly. But look at everything that got in the way of a patient getting to a site in the year 2020, from fires to hurricanes to civil unrest to, um, oh, a pandemic. Right? <laughs> and any one of those things introduces risk to people's studies, and they need countermeasures for that risk. That's why people are embracing these approaches. It's not because they, they didn't come for the innovation, they came for the risk mitigation. Um, mm. But it, I, I do see these signs of people sticking around. And Dan, you see the same with data that like WCG has posted on surveys with investigator sites, where something like 25% of sites or less had indicated they used telemedicine before the pandemic. It was up to around 60% during the pandemic. and easily it was three quarters saying after the pandemic of sites that we're going to keep using telemedicine. So 
this commitment to change isn't just at the sponsor, it's, it's certainly at the site level as well. Yeah, and you made a really good point back in 2010, and I think we did another one a few years after that, early on in this whole decentralized movement, where you were saying, look, this is not, I mean, it's great to cut costs and all this, doing decentralized trials, but this is about the patients. This is about putting patients first, making it more accessible for patients to do studies. And that's never been truer than in a year like this year where we see the disparities amongst different racial groups. We see the civil unrest. We see the fact that the diversity in clinical research issue is a huge problem, all right? And, uh, you know, this, we can actually bring clinical trials. We can make it more accessible for anybody. You don't need necessarily a research site in your own neighborhood, uh, although that does help but it's much easier to do it virtually remotely. I think we need both. I think the industry is going to mature to where you are going to have research sites in the underserved communities that my company is working on doing that. We're working with a few sponsors now on bringing more minorities into research. My theory is you get more researchers, more minority researchers working in research because they have their sphere of influence. Guess what? Their sphere of influence trickles down to patients. So we get more minorities working in research, PIs, coordinators, CRAs. They start talking about research. It's no longer a stigma. Clinical research does have a branding problem. And so all this stuff, I see it working together, decentralized, getting more minority clinicians to do research. All this stuff's going to work together, and hopefully we can finally make clinical research accessible to everybody, not just people who are informed or happen to be educated about the fact that clinical research exists. There is no one silver bullet to the, uh, to the disparities in access to research participation that affect different race and ethnic groups in this country and around the world. It has taken decades to have trust at the level where it is today, and it will take time to recover that trust, to really move the needle in a truly meaningful way. And so one of my fears in the year 2020 is the enthusiasm that people are showing around diversity and inclusion will wane. Mm. And so I'm really hungry to see how many sustaining initiatives we can get going, sustaining commitments in the year 2020, because people are here and they're, they're active. People have always buzzed around diversity and inclusion. It would be nice, but right. people didn't really stick and invest like they are right now. We have to make sure that people are still in this in 21 and in 22, that we don't get distracted by other pressing needs that will start to make noise in our environment and instead see what kinds of commitments we can make that really last. Decentralized trials, running trials in more accessible locations can certainly help. I, I believe that and I think some of the early data from some of the different studies out there support it. But exactly to your point, it's not going to solve everything. Bringing research participation closer to the community, making sure that patients in diverse communities are being engaged for input and insights when we're planning our studies. Um, I think that all of these levers are needed. And even to your point around diverse investigators, I've seen initiatives from a decade ago to try to improve diverse investigators, but that alone 
didn't necessarily fix things. We saw, we saw African-American investigators enrolling a lot of white people telling <laughs> us it was easier. It was easier, You yeah. still have to offer the tools and the resources to make sure that they can succeed. Mm. All of us can ex- succeed in engaging those very patients to make sure that, that study participation is there for them. So I think it's fabulous that you're, you're, um, you're in this and you're, you're participating and moving the needle by helping to bring research participation into diverse communities with diverse investigators. Yeah, thank you. Now, back to your point about making this be sustainable. You know, how do you think, I mean, I've seen the reason that the, the pharma companies that are talking to me right now about this got serious is because the FDA told them we're not accepting your data anymore. Uh, you know, so you need more minorities. Your, your study data needs to reflect the demographics need to reflect the demographics of the actual disease in the country. And so that's why they're got serious about it. Right. And so what do you think other than I haven't seen any, um, I haven't seen, it's funny. I was just, so I'm going to name drop on you, Dan. Okay. I'm doing a webinar tomorrow with, uh, Amy Abernathy and we were talking about this topic on a prep call together because I haven't necessarily seen the FDA has taken a position of transparency and, and, and kind of this naming and shaming approach, right? You can look at FDA snapshots and you can log in and see the diversity or lack thereof in the patient population that was used to support a given study. And I remember Frida Lewis Hall, our chief medical officer at Pfizer, lamenting after seeing one of those, she said for lupus, man, you would have to try really hard to enroll this few black people in the study in lupus. Like, how does that happen? It's, it's like, it, you would think it takes effort to, to not do it when people are all saying they want to see more diversity here. Now, are there things the regulators can do? I mean, beyond naming and shaming? I mean, personally, I have a view on this that I've started to socialize a bit. I think that the FDA has demonstrated when given the power that there are incentives that they can use that can change how people develop their medicines. People didn't used to care much about rare diseases. We created incentive structures that made it more interesting for people to take notice. People didn't care about running studies in pediatric populations. We created carrots and sticks to make people take notice and, and run their studies in those populations. What if What if the regulators were able to offer an incentive, maybe that means a longer period of exclusivity for research sponsors that are powering their studies to demonstrate efficacy and safety in diverse subpopulations, Uh so that in addition to powering your study for all comers, you're also powering your study and demonstrating with power efficacy and safety among African-Americans, among Latinx or others. Are there opportunities for the FDA to use their existing models that have worked for incentivization to drive the change that we want to see here? I think something like that is particularly exciting because some of the differences that we see in areas like breast cancer, some of the race ethnic differences are not just about access to care, right? There are differences in how Black women with breast cancer are responding in terms of their far worse outcomes that cannot be explained entirely by just having less access to care. And unless we're powering our studies to truly understand these important subpopulations, 
we're never going to truly understand the right interventions for each population. And it's not crazy, right? We saw this with Bidil and heart failure for African-Americans. We've seen the ability to potentially power studies based on race and ethnicity. And maybe we have to start incentivizing that. Hmm. And you're, you're much more involved in that world, especially when it comes to the FDA than I am. I mean, I don't really deal with any, I only have uh, interviewed Patrick Stone once, former FDA auditor, but I don't get involved. Um, I don't actually communicate with anyone from the FDA, but are they like, are you starting to see that they're thinking about these things and they're actually going to try to put something in, into place here? I don't know how far the FDA themselves can go. I think that on their own, they're doing these drug snapshots and trying to sort of expose. um, They're trying to encourage. I think it may need the way rare rare disease and pediatric populations needed some legislative effort Mm -hmm. to kind of empower the FDA to be able to do more. Um, But the good news is there are a lot of organizations in this industry that are very good at engaging with legislators around policy that can help. And... You know, this may be, you know, as we come out of the pandemic and we want to see a a sustaining concern and interest around moving the needle in race and ethnic uh, inclusion in our research, maybe that's going to create some opportunities to to create that type of incentive scheme. Because short of that, look, I think a lot of the incremental things are going to help. And otherwise, it's just going to be a factor of time. I did a, um, a session a couple of weeks ago. I had the opportunity to talk with the family of Henrietta Lacks. It was with um, her grandson and a great-granddaughter. And the thing that stood out to me about that, and in preparation, I, I, I re, re, re-watched The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it stuck with me how angry her children were, that, that her, her, her medical, I should back up, the story of Henrietta Lacks, for those that, that may not be familiar with the book or the movie, um, this is an African-American woman in the uh, 1940s, 1950s in Baltimore with cervical cancer. And in the course of her care, some of her cervical cells uh, were removed during a biopsy. And researchers found that these cells continued to reproduce and continued to grow. They were extremely resilient. Henrietta Lacks passed away, but unbeknownst to her family, her cells were grown and cultured and sustained and had been used for research for decades. Incredible research. I mean, the cure for polio, right, in terms of the vaccine was tested using her cells. The cure for HIV, not the cure, the treatments and understanding HIV were developed using her cell line. I think I read the other day there was something like 40 40 million tons of of cells have been cultured, grown over the years, some ridiculous number. But, you know, this this story that her family was really angry to learn that her cells were being used and grown in this way, and they didn't even know. Mm -hmm. But then fast forward and talk to her grandson, David, and see that he's now a research advocate at the NIH. And her great-granddaughter is going to school to become a nurse. And it gives you great hope, right, that these people are now the advocates for change. But it also makes you appreciate that this took generations right. to bring back that trust. It's a, long, it's a long time to have to commit. Absolutely right. Um, I wanted to get into 
the COVID. Obviously, we've got to bring it back home. And after that, I want to get your thoughts on what the industry is going to look like in another decade, maybe. I mean, you seem to know what you're talking about, Craig. I have proof. In 2010, we talked about the stuff that's happening now. So I'm sure people will want to hear what Craig thinks about 2030 in research. I have some theories as well. Uh, but let's talk about this interim analysis and COVID studies. Because you're saying the there's like a study with Pfizer right now, right? For um, endpoints just came out with this article. Can you, can you give some context into that and what the issues are there? Yeah. You, you know, Dan, the last time I posted something good on, on LinkedIn, you shot a video about it and here I am. So I was just sharing on LinkedIn before we, before we got on the call that there was a, uh, an article this morning picked up in endpoint news and the headline was themed around are there delays in the Pfizer vaccine trial? And you would say, well, boy, it was originally supposed to enroll around 30-something thousand. They bumped it up to 44,000, and they're at 42,000. Doesn't seem like there are a lot of delays there. But on the other hand, executives from Pfizer had been talking about there being interim analyses that would be taking place throughout the month of October, even at one point teasing that there could be an FDA submission potentially by the end of October. In a recent earnings call, it was noticed by some of the writers for Endpoint News and some others that Pfizer had a slide that mentioned that no interim analyses had yet been performed. And that raised the question of, are there delays somewhere in the vaccine study? Now, I think one interesting consideration here is the, these vaccine studies are powered to be the, the analyses, interim analyses or others, are triggered by a number of events that are taking place in the study. In this case, the events are how many newly, uh, newly infected patients are there? How many new infections are found among the participants in the research study? Remembering, we don't know who's in an active arm, who's in the control arm, but we want to know that there's a certain number of events, certain number of new infections, and that triggers the Data Safety Monitoring Board to be able to take a peek and start to do some interim analyses on the data. So why haven't there been any interim analyses? It seems like the number of events is lower than what Pfizer and other researchers may have been anticipating given the number of patients and given the duration of time that they've been followed. Why is that the case? Well, one theory that I would pose is, are the people who are signing up for these vaccine trials, are they more pandemic aware? Are the people who are signing up for these trials more likely to social distance, more likely to wear a mask than the general population? I think many have been looking at baseline COVID positivity levels in the community and extrapolating that to the study saying, if you get this many people, you should have this many positive tests. But it seems like it's coming in lower overall. And to me, it raises the question of the, the individuals who are self-selecting to participate in these trials. Now, it's not a bad thing. It's not a flaw. But it may suggest that not only for the Pfizer trial, but for all of these vaccine studies, that they may take more patients or they may need more time in order to hit the event rates that we need in order to do our analyses in these studies, simply because the people who are signing up mm. may be more pandemic sensitive, pandemic aware in terms of keeping themselves safe. 
Wow. I mean, maybe you can also deduce, I don't know, somebody should do a study on this if you can. People in general who do clinical research trials uh, either trust their doctors a lot and they get lucky with the right doctor to refer them to a study if it's a good alternative for them, or they're more knowledgeable about and, and they're more engaged and informed. The, remember the e-patient that we talked about back in 2010. Are they uh, the type of person to do a study as opposed to the real world person who would never consider a study, maybe with the same condition? So it raises a lot of interesting topics there. And I think there are two very real sources of bias that come in when we look at the people who are in most all of our studies. One is the physician's bias. Very often, the healthcare providers themselves are applying their own filter to determine if somebody may be appropriate for a trial beyond the eligibility criteria for the study. That criteria is very subjective, but it probably tends to lean into people who are more engaged in their health, more likely to be compliant. And then likewise, there's the patient's own self-selection bias and who raises their hand to be interested in research participation. Taken together, these people aren't going to be truly quite as representative. They're probably more compliant. They're probably a little more engaged and active in their health. It's probably more likely that in general, placebo and control arms are not responding quite like they would if they were not patients who were enrolling in a research study. Right. I've got to do that. I'm going to do another video on your post on LinkedIn uh, later because <laughs> those ones are good. When Craig Lipsy, you got to follow him on LinkedIn. I'm going to have a link underneath this video and in the show notes, if you're listening to his LinkedIn, must follow. All right. When you post, I mean, you post like really thought provoking things, at least lately you have been, I've just been seeing them pop up in my feed and with like tons of com- hundreds of comments. Right. Uh, so uh, you've been doing this for a while on LinkedIn, right? You've been pretty engaged on LinkedIn since I've known you. I'll tell you, Dan, LinkedIn, um, LinkedIn has been an amazing professional resource for me. Um, I feel very fortunate, you know, over the years, you know, I I had a job that let me meet a lot of interesting people, not just from within my company, but across the community from other pharma companies when I was helping to launch things like Transcelerate from uh, various tech companies and others, just in my role leading innovation and medicine development advisor. And because I would always meet people, I would always try to build connections with them and others on, on LinkedIn. When I left Pfizer and kind of ventured off on my own, LinkedIn was like a godsend for me in terms of uh, people finding me and me finding others. And I know that's not going to be the case for everybody, but it does scale. I do believe that for all of us being able to build these networks of any size, whether it's 400, 1400 or 14,000, you know, building up that, that network and that community and then even if you're not somebody who's going to share original content, which is hard. I mean, Dan, the fact that you've been doing this for a decade is remarkable. I find it hard to just, you know, commit to doing podcasting for like a month and you've been doing this for so long. It's a real commitment. And I get that for many out there coming up with original content is just going to be out of scope for them, but that's okay. 
read something interesting in your day and share it with your own observation attached to it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a tome or a blog post. It can just be a few sentences. But by doing that, you're you're contributing and you're you're helping to engage with that community of people that you've built up just through your interactions throughout the day. Absolutely. Grow your network. It's like, you know, planting a garden. I mean, you're going to have to plant seeds, nurture them, sunlight, water. You know, you can't just throw seeds there and then expect to have, you know, a great garden one day. I mean, it's not how it works. You got to cultivate. So, yeah, people, I brought that up because people always ask me, well, is it too late for me to get into LinkedIn now? I just got started in research. And the answer is no. I mean, where else are you going to go? Facebook is not really... Uh, for networking necessarily, right? It's for all kinds of crazy things. I don't really even use Facebook anymore, but LinkedIn's the only place you can be right now. LinkedIn is the place you can be. And I would say the only time that it's too late to get started on LinkedIn is when you were just let go from your last job. Uh, and there are so many people that I see either know they're making a job change or, or an event happen, and then they're scrambling on LinkedIn and trying to throw out tons of connections. And then you're, being, you're stuck being reactive. Um, so I completely agree, Dan. Now is the time to just start building your network. And you know, a lot of people will ask me, Craig, do you only connect with people on LinkedIn or accept connections from people that you know and that you've worked with? For me, I take connections from anybody in our industry. Um, so if you're a financial advisor out there and you want to send me a LinkedIn connection, I'm probably going to turn you away. <laughs> but if you're a CRA, a study coordinator, you're working in QA or some other role somewhere in the clinical research enterprise, by all means, let's connect. And um, I would encourage others to view it the same. I don't think it creates noise. I think you're building your community. Right. I agree. If I, people ask me the same thing and I tell them, I think I read it in Sapiens, but you know, the human brain has only evolved even today to recognize like something like 500 people. So even like all the influencers out there, if they only accepted who they recognize, it's only going to be like 500 people max. And you have people with like 5 million. Oh, Sapiens right, right there. Great pick for the, uh, for the bookshelf, Dan. Sapiens. That's uh, that's, yeah, that's one of my yeah. uh, that's one of my go-to. I think I read that in there. Uh, I think I read that in there. The problem with reading all these books is they all start like over overlapping into one another because you realize how they're like actually saying the same thing. A lot of these books. Uh, twenty thirty, Craig. Okay, we'll we'll end with this. I'm hearing a lot of things. I mean, research the amount of studies that are out here. This is twenty twenty has been a record year for research. You know, you and I, uh, we talk all the time about on LinkedIn about how fortunate we are to be in this industry where even during this pandemic, which unfortunately had all these economic ramifications for a lot of people in other industries, we're blessed to be in research. Uh, It's busier than it's ever been. And I think anybody who's in research or trying to get into research is going to be surprised at just how many opportunities there are here. Do you think this is going to continue uh, into the next decade? Do you see a contraction in the number of studies that are out there? Or do you see this continuing to climb until we get to the stage where we have decentralized trials, we have traditional trials? Maybe we even have super customized long tail studies where we're just creating a protocol for one patient 
where do you see the next decade shaping up as far as research opportunities? Maybe somebody's looking outside right now watching our video and saying, should I get into clinical research? Uh, I don't know what it's going to be like in 10 years from now. What do you have to say to them? I guess my answer here will be, I don't know exactly what it's going to be like either. I have my ideas for what it's going to be like, but I do know that this has been an amazing and certainly resilient industry during this during this terrible year for so many. It's been resilient in terms of the way the research community has risen up and embraced new tools and approaches to keep their trials running. It's been resilient in keeping our workforce going and it's been resilient in terms of public perception. Let's face it, a year ago, for most of us, if we were at a social event and mentioned we worked in pharma, people would assume that we're drug reps. Yeah. <laughs> now people actually know and, and appreciate and, and embrace that there's drug development and clinical trials that are taking place all around them. So let me, let me give you my, uh, my forecast in terms of where, where the puck is going. First, in terms of uh, the post-COVID over the next couple of years, I do think that the idea of decentralized research is not going to fade away. Decentralized trials is not going to mean virtual trials taking place entirely out of people's homes. I can tell you that with confidence because for the last 10 years, I've been talking to patients about what they want and how to participate in research. What patients have consistently told me across disease areas and communities is they want optionality and flexibility. They don't want to never, I've never had a patient say to me, boy, I would be happy if I could never go to a site ever again. That's not the ask of them. What they want is flexibility. So how do we give flexibility? It doesn't mean trial protocols that say visit one is in the clinic, visit two is at home, visit three is in the clinic, visit four is at home. That's not giving the patient flexibility any more than Whole Foods telling me you will go to the market in January, you will have home delivery in February, you will go to the market in March, you will have home delivery in April. Customer centricity in that case means I have choice. And patient centricity for hybrid trials means options for patients. Now, there are some that will say, ah, what about biopsies? But what about this? Yes, there will always be something that comes up in a study that requires a clinical interaction in a controlled setting. But as we've seen in 2020, the number of those is actually lower than we thought. And with the use of new types of digital tools for capturing our outcomes and endpoint data, that number is dropping even further still. Even in oncology trials, we're seeing this year, the increased use of local labs and local imaging centers. It doesn't mean we're trucking an MRI to a patient's front yard. We're just giving them more local and convenient options in how to engage. I think we'll also see some, some, some changes in terms of leadership expectations in pharma companies coming out of COVID. I think that this year, we saw a sense of urgency as never before with Operation Warp Speed and how quickly new vaccines and new therapies were being developed. I believe that there are CEOs and CFOs and large pharma companies that have been looking down at their R&D organizations for years, saying, go faster. And those R&D leaders were looking up saying, the machine is going as fast as it can. And yet, this year we saw that there is a whole other level of speed that can be brought. Now that level of speed was brought through a lot of parallel processing. It was brought by removing a lot of bureaucracy and governance. But the question to me will be, 
What is the next disease area that will have an operation warp speed? What's the next disease area that also has significant unmet need and an urgency in our country and around the world? Will it be in Alzheimer's? What will be that next area that we're bringing that same sense to? I'll add something that I think over the next seven years will be if we look at the experiences of what I'll call all-comer um, observational studies that are happening right now. If you're familiar with Project Baseline from Google and Verily, or the NIH's All of Us study, these are studies that are enrolling, whether tens of thousands or even up to a million Americans, where each enrolled participant is sharing EMR data, molecular data, self-tracked data with apps, wearable data. Bits, now today, yeah. some people look at those studies and say, how can I enroll a patient into my trial out of there and pull them into my study? I would argue, why are you pulling them out at all? They're already in a study platform that they opted into where they're sharing a ridiculous amount of data. How much more data do you need for your particular study? And so the future here to me is, as we think about master protocols, where we can test multiple drugs under one study framework, how do these all-comer studies turn into master protocols so that a patient is simply deciding, I want to participate in research? And they can begin to share in an observational way. When they're eligible for an intervention, they can be invited if they'd like to be randomized for an interventional arm, but they're not getting pulled out into another study silo. They're just continuing to share where they were. When that intervention phase ends, they stop the intervention, but continue to share. Sure. This to me is a future of extremely longitudinal engagement with patients on their own terms and no longer pulling patients out into study specific environments, but letting them participate in their own way. Here's my last forecast for you, Dan. This one I haven't talked about too much uh, publicly. I think that there's going to be another level of disruption that's driven by patients that we haven't yet seen come together. I think that incrementally, there are just about every area of research and development today that there are examples of patients taking control and owning that part of the process. Funding of research, basic science through biohacking, funding through crowdsourcing, data sharing through data sharing platforms like patients like me. I think we've seen over and over again that there are ways that patients themselves have taken back control over different processes in research and development. What we haven't yet seen is all those steps coming together. And is there a model that will emerge over the next decade where patient-powered organizations themselves are the ones that will disrupt what pharma is controlling today. I know a lot of people will say, ah, Google and Amazon are going to disrupt pharma. I would argue, watch the patients and let's see what organized patients are able to do in this space. Hmm. That's interesting, yeah, because they can just take advantage of the infrastructure that Google and Apple and everybody's building. Um, very interesting stuff. I mean, We'll see, you know, go back to the 2010 interview and look at some of the predictions there and then think about the fact that we're in 2020. So we're going to look, we're going to re-examine. Hopefully it doesn't take 10 years to get you back on, Craig. 
but uh, we're going to do more interviews with you and we're going to see how these things evolve. I'm overall extremely bullish on the industry. I think even if all these things are occurring, we're always going to need more researchers, more CRAs, more coordinators, more clinicians, because the branding, there's a perception still, even today, Craig, if I go out, even with COVID at the forefront, if I were to go out to my street right here on the street and just pull random people aside and say, hey, you want to join a clinical trial? They'll look at me like I'm trying to harm them, like maybe I'm kidnapping them or something. So until that stigma goes away, right, I think we're always going to need the clinicians and the support staff to kind of educate these patients on research. So all these things can coexist. If my mother came home and said, I found a clinical trial on the internet, I'm going to stop taking the medicine that my doctor prescribed for me. And I'm going to take this other pill that got shipped to me in the mail, but it's okay because they gave me an app. All of that (laughs) is technically doable, but is that really like, if I looked at my mother telling me that's what she was going to be doing, I think she was nuts right? These are important decisions. When, when people describe what they do for observational research using research kit and app-based approaches, Godspeed, right? If it's observational, you can do almost anything. But if you're asking people to give up a medicine that they were prescribed and switch instead to some other investigational product, that is a huge decision to make that people should have an opportunity to engage with a healthcare professional in terms of how they're making that decision. Mm-hmm. And I, I, th- I know that people get excited about technology. I get excited about technology. But when I talk to patients on these types of topics, this is a very intimate and important decision that they need humans around them to feel that level of confidence. Can they be followed using technology and make access easier? Absolutely. But can the whole process just be replaced by a bot and automated on an app? Technically, yes, but not in terms of a sustainable model that patients want. Right. Practically, I, I no. do think it's a safe space for uh, – now, will roles change, right? Will what, the way a monitor works today look different over the next five years? Will the work a study coordinator does today look different over the next five years? Absolutely. I think it's important for our industry that – the people that are stepping forward are eyes wide open that there sure. will be change. Will they still have a job and a role? Absolutely. We have a pipeline of new medicines that runs out, you know, for, for decades. The work will still be there. The studies will be, still be there. The specific details of your role may change. And so it does require some resilience and, and being able to manage change. But if you're, if you're here for the patients, for the science, for having a fulfilling job that it can be financially rewarding and, and, and personally extremely satisfying, I think this is the right place to be. This is the right place. I'll guess I'll end it with, because what you just said reminded me, we have a site owner academy and the topic last week actually was, hey, Dan, you know, we're worried is decentralized trials. We want to be on the right side of history. Are we... Are we smart for starting clinics right now? And I tell them, look, I wish I started blogging in 2010. I wish I started in 2005 when I first started in the industry full time because I came in, Craig, right at the year that the industry was shifting from paper CRFs to EDC. And I remember I was just coming in. So I had no, I didn't care about EDC or paper CRF. To me, it was the same thing. Monitors 
that were doing research for 20 years prior to me getting in we're all freaking out. This is going to be the end of our jobs as we know it. Who's going to pull the papers now when you have a database of the CRF? So we're done. We're done. And look where we are 15 years later. There's never been more studies. There's never been a need for more CRAs. So like you just said, things just change slightly. But the demand for qualified researchers, I don't think is going away. We're going to actually need more. I, uh, I I do agree that there uh, the opportunities will still be there. I um, I empathize with investigators um, and individuals that are launching investigator sites or or um, investing in them. Just how far should the owner of a research site today invest in their technology capabilities? I think is a really interesting challenge today, because it might make sense in one lens to say. Maybe I should be investing in remote monitoring and telemedicine and other tools for me to be able to participate and be able to engage with my patients in remote ways. But then on the other hand, we know that if you're participating in a multi-center trial, that a sponsor and a CRO may come down the line and say, here is the technology that we want you to use for our multi-center trial. I think that there's going to be a reckoning that's similar to what we saw in electronic data capture, uh, the era of having all those laptops dropped off at your doorstep. I think that this reckoning is going to be one where sponsors and CROs need to start focusing on the system's quality and defining what makes a quality system in this space and the interoperability so they can get out the performance data and analytics that they need for oversight and then let the sites use the technology that fits best in their environment. The way I think about it is the way I think about negative 80 freezers. Every sponsor wants you to have one, but they're not dropping off their favorite negative 80 freezer at your doorstep for every study. A minimum criteria was defined for what makes a negative 80 freezer acceptable. And then the site can invest in the one that fits in their environment and in their workflow. And I think we need to start getting there with other site-facing technologies. Uh, and by the way, still provision sites that need it, right? Not to leave any sites behind, but if you don't have it, fine, then the sponsor and CRO can provide it. But if you have a solution that works for how you run studies, Godspeed, why should we get in your way? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100% agree. So, wow. Thank you, Craig, for coming on. I know we went over uh, what we initially agreed on, but it's Craig Lipset. I got to ask the questions. You know, the people have been waiting. It's been so long since I've had you on and uh, go follow Craig. What's the best place? Uh, is it LinkedIn? You want people to go to your LinkedIn? Yeah, come on. Let's connect on LinkedIn. I, I'm also on Twitter uh, at Craig oh, Lipset, right. but most of the time, if I'm uh, interacting with folks on social, it's over on LinkedIn. Um, so let's come connect over there. I've noticed that that's an interesting side discussion. LinkedIn has kind of replaced Twitter for clinical research. I remember in 2010, we did the bulk of our communications and me, you, and with other researchers on Twitter. And somewhere around 2015, 2016, that shifted over to LinkedIn. Definitely in 2020, I've noticed that as well. Dan, maybe we have to duet a TikTok next for- uh, We got for that. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, who knows? 2030, <laughs> we might do VR. So we'll be in, in each other's homes at the same time. So always a pleasure, Craig. 
Go connect with Craig Lipset on LinkedIn. Go connect with him on Twitter as well. The links will be in the show notes. Thank you very much, Craig, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Always good to get your insights. I'm going to be doing more videos about the stuff you post on LinkedIn because those resonate with the LinkedIn community and uh, for good reason. I'm going to be there watching like the rest of uh, like the rest of the community. So thanks again. Keep it up, Dan. Thank you very much. And thank you everybody for watching and listening and we'll catch you all later. Bye-bye. So, hey, everybody, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. Again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind, please. Uh, And also go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com if you're interested in learning more about who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, You can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.